and we assume that the natural way to find that is to go where it is not to think on terms of borrowing or of lending but of recognizing that culture is a unit a totality revealing itself through an infinite diversity of culture patterns and culture groups taking this as a foundation we can work for a unity of cultures even as we work for a political unity and we can work for religious unity even as we work for scientific unity we observe with some interest that a great many scientists belonging to other and different nations even some that are not compatible with our own political theories as men and as scientists can gather and discuss and think and talk things over without the animosities that you normally might expect for wherever the individual has ideas bigger than himself he can share those ideas with others on a like cultural level and wherever it's impossible to share there is evidence that the cultural bonds are not strong enough and without these bonds the peace of the future can never be assured in this way anthropology looking forward into the future is not content to think in terms of the new conveniences the new commodities and the new situations that may arise in the management of our temporal and commercial activities there must be this new world this new wonderful and beautiful world that we desperately need in order to justify our existence now or any other time assuming that the motion of culture is genuine that the anthropologist is correct that he has dimly perceived this motion and is able to project it into the future and therefore that a hundred years from now will not merely be today pushed into tomorrow but will be uh, a an ascending arc of attainment an achievement uh, beyond and above uh, the continuation of things as they are how will he estimate or conceive this new level of life to be he tells us that the only answer to that that is within his jurisdiction is the concept that this ascent means that more of the inside of man will come out and more of the good things we have always known uh, will be apparent than are now obvious in consequence of this there will be a fulfillment to a degree at least of man's most secret longings and hopings as well as this motion forward therefore that in a hundred years from now we will say it is perfectly conceivable that man becoming more anthropologically conscious of the concept of culture may bring about marked changes in the three departments uh, which we have already mentioned namely the departments of nationality and of religion and of language uh, the anthropologist feels convinced that the progress of world language will go on more rapidly than it has uh, in the past not in peril simply by cultural motive but by economic motive but achieving in its ultimate end the 
establishment of a more common understanding between human beings. This understanding may at first not be a true sharing of language. It may begin as it has already begun, in the greater ability of translation. Uh, the appearance of the better literary works of various groups in the published languages of other groups. So that today we can look forward uh, to a greater availability of world literature and will be in this country, for example, relieved of the overburden of Mediterranean literature and the total lack of literature from practically every other part of the world. The anthropologist will nod his head with a certain quiet sense of satisfaction when he realizes that now probably a hundred or two hundred of the world's great classics from every nation can be found in book form at under fifty cents a copy. He feels this is important because the individual who today begins to study these or to read them even superficially is building the beginnings of cultural bridges. He is beginning to create what culture must have, and that is sympathy, a certain tolerance, a certain understanding. The amazing and incredible discovery that somebody beside himself has done something in this world. That he is not a patriot because he closes his eyes to the achievements of everyone but his own that anthropology calls him to a higher patriotism and that is a patriotism to the common good which must be advanced and without which the good of individual nations can never be properly advanced. The second important contribution lies in nation, national psychology and national psychology is also in the process of being broken down and we find greater and greater economic and cultural exchange between nations than we have ever known before. So that we are in a cultural motion, although as yet it is too slight to have any direct bearing upon the grand scheme of our living. Anthropologists have the suspicion that if student exchanges and things like this go on for another hundred years, there will be cultural motion. That this cultural motion will mean that there will be fewer strangers in this world. And the great barrier to all true progress is the stranger. And the stranger is not only the individual from another country, but the person working alongside of us whom we have never known. The stranger is the neighbor next door we have never spoken to. And from this it extends on to the individual of other racial or biological groups with which we have never formed cultural bridges and therefore whose life, work and contribution to the common good we have totally ignored or terribly underestimated. Religion also comes strongly under this anthropological concept. And religion is going to be what the British so often refer to as the sticky wicket in most cases because religion differs in many ways from most other parts of the cultural motion uh, and it exaggerates the difficulties which we find in the other groups because religion moves around revelation and re revelation is nearly always involved in uniqueness 
and uniqueness is nearly always the basis of segregation and separation. If this means, therefore, that in order to be true to your faith, you must deny all other faiths, you put a terrible barrier in the way of cultural integration. But at the same time, you are contributing markedly to the danger of war. So we have a situation of the deepest importance. Religious isolation is very apt to cause the collapse of civilization. So where does our allegiance lie? Some persons would say, go on to the bitter end. If the world falls to pieces, I've been true to my faith. This viewpoint is still quite popular, by the way. It has many more followers than we realize. But the anthropologist, who is looking objectively at the problem and hopes that he is standing in a position in which he is not biased, comes to the realization or comes to the conclusion that this is too great a price to pay for religious isolation, that its moral example is more destructive than the virtue that it attains, that when we separate human beings so tremendously, we should at least have extremely adequate grounds upon which to create such separation, and that in fact we have not this ground. We speak of the uniqueness of a revelation. We remove from this uniqueness proper names and nothing else, and we have nothing left that's unique. How many people realize this? We should realize it with the golden rule in 48 languages and in every religion of the world. Where, then, is this uniqueness? This uniqueness, anthropology tells us, or affirms, to be the result of miscomprehension, misunderstanding, and restriction or limitation of cultural insight. And he does not feel that the uniqueness is valuable enough, important enough, or real enough to permit it to threaten the entire progress of mankind. He therefore uh, takes what he considers to be a proper ground. No, anthropology would never attempt to force its own ideas upon man as a religion. It has no concept of doing so. Nor would it advise or advocate all men with the same religion. It does not wish to take away from man the uniqueness of what he believes to be the dispensation under which he exists. The only thing it requires of him is that he shall take a cultured attitude towards those of other beliefs, that he shall recognize the possibility of common enrichment, that in all matters that he will have a proper attitude of respect, a proper attitude of sympathy, a cheerful willingness to cooperate with those of other faiths and other beliefs, and the capacity to perceive that a good man is a culture man, and that this good man has never been produced solely by one faith. 
that a good man is more important than an affiliated man. That the fact that the individual becomes better is the final evidence of the contribution of religion to life. Therefore, the good man, whatever he may be and whatever he may believe, is entitled to the common respect of all other good men. Anthropology is very hopeful that within a hundred years this concept will be, if not universal, far more so than it is now. We may not be able to overcome all prejudice, but anthropology points out that we are being forced into this position, often against our will, by a motion in society which cannot be stopped and that this motion means that either we must move with it or expose ourselves to, the, to another cycle of holy wars. And most people at the present moment are tired of even thinking of holy wars, letting alone to indulge in one. It is very doubtful if today the world could really work itself into a proper mood for a major crusade. Already the violence of these attitudes has been rather seriously undermined. It is doubtful if it would get much further than a verbal outbreak. But it could, and anthropology warns that if it should, it could wreck a cultural motion for a long time to come. Anthropology hopes in its own thinking that the motion of heterogeneous faiths, the gradual recognition that we do business with people, and that this person who as socially was a stranger becomes an important element in the success of our activities. We become to be more dependent upon the farmer in Indonesia, uh, the rich uh, caliph or the rich sheikh of the Near East with his oil wells, uh, the importance of uh, the Formosa as a front line of defense against somebody else, the need of cultural contact with Japan as possibly the western boundary of our way of life. These things are forcing us to realize that we cannot ridicule a man and then expect him to stand with us in an emergency. So we have to at least take on an appearance of civility. This appearance coupled with greater and greater contact. I know a man who is engaged in a large business in this country. He has been an executive of that business for 40 years. He is only a few years from retirement. For the first 35 years of that position as an executive, he sat with his feet under one desk. In the last five years, he has made 42 trips around the world for his business only. This means something. It means a motion. This man has no longer the same concepts of the world that he had while his feet were under the desk. He cannot. He does not. He is discovering like a small boy a world of wonders that he never knew existed. He is, he is chuckling, he is brimming over, and the fatigue which made 
retirement seemed very attractive five years ago has disappeared and he hopes he can stay on for another ten years and keep on doing it. He has suddenly found, as we are finding, uh, what Wilkie called the one world front. That today, if you want to make a better mousetrap, you've got to import most of the materials. And that in only one or two scientific elements does the United States of America supply its own basic needs. This has its effect, and we must sometime, even as businessmen, realize that you cannot ridicule your brother's God and buy from him at a profit. It just won't work. So a, a condition is being forced upon us, meaning cultural insight. And let us not forget that the man we visit, and who in turn from some other place visits us, is passing through the same experiences that we are. Individuals who actually believed the world ended in the Sea of Yemen are suddenly discovered that it didn't. And it has been estimated that the three great dictators with whom we had trouble not so many years ago would probably not have been nearly so troublesome had any one of them been a traveler. But they were not. They had the delightful consistency of believing they lived in a small world and that there was very little other world. Thus they were right ready to be despots, and they were. Culture thus sees the inevitable improvement of itself and the advancement of its purposes through being forced into a new relationship with peoples. The United Nations presents another phase of this. Uh, the Geneva situation is still another. Uh, the League of Nations, the Hague Conferences, all of these different motions uh, carry certain cultural overtones. But against them, the uninitiated person raises such barriers of prejudice and restriction that they, that they go far less rapidly than we would normally wish that they could. The motion cannot be stopped, however. And within the next century, we must either move with this situation or else set up blocks and barriers which will almost certainly lead us to the worst international catastrophe we have ever known. This being pretty obvious, the anthropologist feels that education should hearken to him a little more, that there should be greater emphasis in educating young people from the beginning in the fact that they are growing up on a planet and not in a community that they are growing up in a moving world and not strictly and entirely in a restricted local area. That they are going to be forced to know, understand, and do business with a great many peoples. Also, anthropology is concerned, in the United States particularly, with the unfortunate and rather limited monolinguist situation that we have here. The European has one advantage over the American in this respect. The average European speaks two to three languages. The average American does not. Therefore, in an emergency or under situations, he is not able to handle things as well as he should. It is only within the last 25 years it has ever occurred to us to teach languages even to our diplomats. 
and there are a great many individuals holding office in various countries and representing the United States who do not speak one word of the language of the country in which they're located. This is bad. This helps to preserve prejudices and at best leaves the representation of the nation in the uncertain hands of an interpreter who can destroy the entire meaning or pervert it in any way may please him and the most concerned individual will never know it. This uh, type of thing means bridging, bridging constantly and is the reason why the anthropologist is so concerned with language bridges. As an anthropologist also he is not without his interest in ethnology or without interest in biological and psychological aspects of his problem. He recognizes that culture, essential culture, is the basis of what we might term integration. He realizes that the lack of culture within the individual is the principal cause of his tension. That the international lack of culture is the principal cause of international tension. International tension reacts on every individual individual tension, if it accumulates in enough persons, gradually assumes the form of national tension. If, therefore, unreasonable tension exists anywhere, it ultimately destroys the smooth running of whatever mechanism is involved with that tension. Consequently, anthropology looking forward into the future assumes definitely that cultural progress will have important physiological effect upon the individual. Now if we go from the anthropological level for a moment to some of the more philosophical and abstract concepts of the future, we realize that mystical prophecies about these things all run approximately in the same thought as anthropology but upon slightly different levels. All mystical concepts of the future imply a better world. They imply some form of general reorganization. And to most mystics, from the such seers as Swedenborg on, the future is better because the individual is a more spiritual being. That the internal growth of man brings with it the impulses and instincts to better conduct, better relationship, nobler incentives, and to a measure detachment from the great bugaboo of materialism. These things are present in all mystical prophecies concerning the future of cultures. Most of these mystical concepts, then, are not essentially different from the end uh, which culture suggests. But they go one step further, but only as culture itself would go, namely by assuming that the better world, turning about, makes a better person. That therefore man, living in a more suitable climate of conduct, collective and individual, becomes a more suitable person. Today, for example, the possibility of man possessing in a hundred years, five hundred years, or a thousand years, greater extrasensory perception range has been given a lot of thought. 
The fact that uh, the ESP researchers have indicated that some individuals do possess a certain extrasensory uh, gamut would be anthropologically uh, interpreted as meaning that potentially all peoples have this gamut. That it is also more noticeable in so-called uh, lower culture groups. Lower in the sense of being less sophisticated, but not necessarily lower in the sense of actual value. Can we say that the individual who can perform acts of vision or clairvoyance or clairaudience that we cannot perform, must we assume that he's lower than we are, even though he belongs to some so-called primitive culture? He is not lower. Anthropology is not interested in height and lowness. It is simply specialization. It is simply situation making possible something which our situation seemingly has denied. On the other hand, we face this man with certain knowledge which he does not possess. And through the common sharing of this knowledge, we discover that culture is a giving and taking. That it is the individual accepting what he needs and trying seriously and honorably to convey to another that which he needs in order that we may have a free circulation of cultural attainment. Assuming that we could make a distinct 10% gain in our culture in the next 100 years, and that this 10% gain represents the cultural ascent associated with scientific progress, we could then say that in terms of the present time, we would live in a far better world than we have ever known. We would live in a world in which, for instance, we would be able to visualize solution somewhat better than we do now. For a hundred years of culture with anthropological education would give us a new insight into the true meaning of growth as growth applies to the human being, as growth applies to the individual coming of age in nature. If anthropology led this uh, study though, so that the average child of a hundred years from now was perfectly conversant with the anthropological pattern is quite possible and conceivable that this added to the 10% of progress which might normally be hoped would result in a very much broader, deeper, and wiser world than we have today. In this world there would be fewer enemies and more friends. In this world there would be more understanding and less misunderstanding. There would also be the gradual clarification of incentives. And as one anthropologist pointed out, the one, perhaps the unique thing that anthropology can offer to man is a systematic pattern of incentives. Incentives that are desirable. Incentives that are significant. In other words, the reason for existence must be ennobled before we can hope to plan or build with any concept that is adequate. We cannot live only to extricate ourselves from immediate emergency. 
We cannot live today only in order that we can save ourselves from the misfortunes of yesterday. Nor can we live today only in the process of trying to block the misfortunes of tomorrow. We have to live in the concept of a gradual purpose, gradually attained by systematic effort. The moment you have this concept, you will find people putting their shoulders to the wheel. The moment people have a vision, they will move. And this has been proven often by the most negative circumstances of history. For even tyranny has, has given men concept of something to be done. And many tyrants have brought their whole world with them to their common destruction with vast enthusiasm simply because they had a strong program and everybody wanted to get into it. The same way a good program, strongly and firmly stated, will gain the allegiance that is now wasted and will rescue the individual from the neurosis of his own spare time. A spare time which is not necessary for his own survival and which he sees no need of applying to the survival of anything else. The idea that culture could become a hobby, could become the great avocation of mankind, is most intriguing, most stimulating. Assuming that present cultural motion <coughs> continues approximately as it goes along today, and that meeting certain very difficult situations, we meet them with some measure of sufficiency. Not a total measure, but a surviving measure of efficiency. The world a hundred years from now should be politically quite different from what it appears to us today. The pattern of policy, the pattern of the means by which political ends are attained, is so faulty that culture could not permit it to go unchallenged. We must therefore reasonably expect that there would be greater emphasis upon honesty and integrity in the management of things than we recognize now. And it is quite probable that the political basis of governments and other important uh, basic principles would be largely modified by cultural understanding. One of the things that culture would do would be to dignify public office and dignify it by pointing out clearly to the conscious experience of man the responsibilities of office so that man would regard seriously as his proper contribution to society opportunities which he now exploits largely for personal profit. And this type of motion would be cultural and would be an ascent. The effort to elect an honest man under the present conditions will always be of doubtful merit for the simple reason that he is unable to move if elected. Whereas culture would give him an environment in which honor and honesty would be supported. And uh, anthropologists are of the opinion that through circumstances or necessity we will raise the level of our leadership considerably in the next century. We must do so in order to survive. Culture bringing into our lives also greater harmoniousness by reducing the hazards of life 
by reducing the negative and adverse um, uh, experiences and observations with which we distort our present psychology might very well add considerably to our health and assist us in the advancement of uh, our hope of uh, overcoming many of the forms of sickness and dilemma which burden us likewise. Culture in terms of anthropology if it became prevalent could probably add from five to ten years to the life expectancy of the average person. In a culture system the average American today could live and achieve a good length of life with full efficiency and be as able and as happy and as healthy at a hundred as he now is at fifty. The difference lies in wear and tear and the wear and tear lies in the survival of barbarism beyond its proper time. It is therefore quite conceivable that our generations could be extended and culture would be the only justification for the extension of them. There is no reason why anyone should live longer if he does not learn to live better. The mere continuance of his present state is neither attractive nor important. The individual can make enough trouble now in 60 or 70 years and the great majority of persons are not missed not nearly as much as they think they are going to be. We make a certain formality of expressing our profound regrets and then in the privacy of our own lives give thanks. This situation is because of the low culture platform. If man living to a hundred was during this entire period culturally occupied he would have a pleasant happy life and culture would make him companionable and compatible which is not the case in most instances today for culture must inevitably take away from him those crudities those forms of savagery which we sometimes refer to as egotism and selfishness. Thus culture gives us greater promise of maturity of life and this in turn immediately increases the rapidity of the cultural motion. An individual who is cultured beyond his present state can make a more rapid contribution to man's further culture than he can in his present state. Thus culture increases culture and that which in the past might have required a thousand years might well be affected today in a hundred due to the differences in the available instruments of progress. Culture also becomes a, a, a very valuable solution uh, to the upset and inconsistent industrial life of our people. No one can doubt that sometime, somewhere, the productive ingenuity of the race must be stalemated in the sense that we are already overproducing in order to maintain the type of economic level that we feel to be necessary. Inflation probably cannot be stopped for a long time 
but inflation cannot be indefinitely maintained. There is no possibility of the individual living continuously above the level of the reasonable, going on this way indefinitely in a world of increasing populations, in a world of the constant and inevitable reduction of basic assets. He cannot go on forever building his world around the concept that dominates it today. He is bound ultimately to find himself at the end of his resources of expansion. And even if he finds other worlds to conquer, he only puts off the inevitable evil day. He cannot, in nature, go on this way without bringing his ambitions and his programs and projects within the boundaries of a protective, disciplining culture. If, however, in the course of the next century, he becomes somewhat more cultural, so that value becomes of greater importance to him, it will inevitably affect his industries, his economics, and everything that he now knows. If he becomes cultural, however, he need not regard these changes as dangerous to his happiness. We may say that even now many persons realize that cultural program is dangerous only to our unhappiness, and that if we uh, once begin to move as cultural beings, we will find that our joy increases in what we are and what we do, and we no longer depend for our total recreation upon what we have. There is a change in basic psychology here, which is the indication of culture. Culture is not a measure of wealth, it is a measure of attainment. And even now, in many cultures, worldly goods are comparatively unimportant. And there are many countries today, uh, so-called highly advanced countries, in which a person is measured by his attainments primarily. The fact that this does not prevail as it should in this country means correction is indicated, because we cannot continue on the ground that mere possession constitutes culture, or that the person who possesses has in this way fulfilled his total destiny. His cultural life must be strengthened. If this is the case, and we are able to release some part of our effort from this dynamic struggle for things, we shall find our entire pattern settled down to something in which rugged competition is no longer necessary in order that we shall attain ends that are completely satisfactory to ourselves. Only then, if we use this incline upward rather than pushing only forward, can we find solution. There is no solution in the present economic pressure this moving forward that each year's sales must be measured only by the preceding year, and that if we do not top what we have done on the best year we ever had, we are dismal failures. 
this type of thinking cannot go on without destroying man spiritually, morally, psychologically, and physically. So Kosher points out the, the release that is given by permitting the individual to become aware of the wealth of personal self-expression, uh, the wealth of sharing thought, the wealth of loving beauty, the wealth of creating rather than merely perpetuating. And uh, many uh, anthropologists who are aware of the arts and these things uh, think in terms of music on this type of subject. The development of very excellent reproducing equipment has practically destroyed the individual's inclination to become a musician. Whereas 50 years ago, the family nearly always had someone who could uh, play the piano and two or three people who could sing, perhaps slightly off-key, but still to the general enjoyment. And everyone got up and did it. Now, there is something about doing it that is tremendously important. And the doing of a mediocre piece of music in a thoroughly mediocre style has still greater cultural significance than listening forever to the greatest music that has ever been composed, magnificently performed. So that the problem as to whether you have one, two, three, or four loudspeakers scattered around your room in order that you may get them the sound from the front, from the back, from above and below at the same time, and perhaps have the beautiful opportunity of hearing it also coming in the window from one of the neighbors. This is regarded as progress, but this is progress only on the level, because it is not lifting the individual. We may say, yes, it will give him music appreciation that he never had before. It is true that it may do so. There will be long-range motion in it. But this motion that is separated entirely from creative action becomes too much like indoctrination. We are not made cultural merely through our ears. We are not made cultural by what is done to us or for us primarily. It is what we release through ourselves that becomes the one magnificent satisfaction of culture. Thus the individual uh, can still be a comparatively dissatisfied person in the presence of magnificent equipment for music. He does not have the personal psychological therapy of personal performance, of actually learning to do something himself. These elements must also be corrected in the future, where creativity must be given greater consideration. The anthropologist, I think, would like to see some creative art as a part of every curriculum, and that no person should be permitted to graduate as a doctor of medicine or a doctor of law unless he also can prove on the occasion of his final examination that he is proficient on the Jews harp, the harmonica, or something of that nature. He must be able to express himself creatively. He must not depend totally 
upon intellectual reconstruction and continual uh, circulation of other people's ideas. He has got to get into creativity. Creativity is culture. We are happy, however, in seeing that some of these facts are beginning to be more obvious than they ever were before. The anthropologist says this is the proof of culture motion. We have come from the Greeks to now, and more persons probably than ever before, including the time of the Greeks, are aware of the need. In the time of the golden age of Pericles, fifty or a hundred great human beings were aware of the need in a great way. Today, twenty-five centuries later, two and a half billion human beings are to some measure, in some way, aware of need. Not as greatly as the Greek, but still the tremendous diffusion of the realization of need. And whereas there were 150 articulate Greeks who could tell the story, there are probably today a million articulate people who can tell the story. Perhaps not as thoroughly as the Greeks did, but sufficiently to show that the motion of culture has gradually communicated itself to groups, to masses, and to the total body of humanity, whereas at one time it was almost a small autocratic group locked within the boundary of its own circle and talking only to its own kind. This point is a very important one in representing cultural motion. It shows the diffusion. It shows it when we see everywhere the increase of art interest, of culture, the advancement of many things uh, that uh, speak of great culture, but at this time speak only of a longing which the individual has never integrated in himself into the statement that this is culture that I need. He has never stated that. He has simply felt the hunger and eaten as he could but he has never learned the laws of the dietetics of culture. He has never learned what its nutrition is or how it should be administered. But he is moving toward it. What then would we say would have the effect upon uh, the total growth of these beings? Going back to the first question we started with this evening, the growth of soul through body. The growth of body after maturity of years does not appear to be very obvious to us. We presume and assume that it maintains itself until decrepitude sets in. Actually, body can constantly grow. Body is either constantly growing or constantly decaying, one or the other. It never stands still. Consequently, anything which vitalizes the inner life of the individual contributes that vitality to body. Also, body under culture is in a constant state of refinement, and that is sensitizing of its elements. Twenty years of culture will change the cellular structure of the brain. Twenty years of culture will cause the individual to have command and control of nervous reflexes that he did not have before because he never called upon them before. And our psychological life also calls upon functions 
It is not merely our physical living that demands functional coordination. There are in the body of man innumerable functional processes which have to do with the transmission of the psychic life of the individual into activity. Their culture refines and strengthens these bridges, therefore giving the being in the body ever greater areas of function and enabling it to release itself more adequately through the body. If in the course of culture the individual transforms his mechanism from a $25 radio to a $200 radio, he is going to have better receptivity of something because he has better instrument to receive with. The program may be quite the same program if it's coming from within himself, but it is going to sound better. He is going to suddenly come to the conclusion that the program is better. That is the way he is going to immediately analyze it. He's going to say, when I heard it before with his other equipment, I am quite certain it was off-key. Now, with this better equipment, it seems to be on-key. And he is going to blame or assume that the program has changed. But actually, he is providing an instrument by means of which psychic motion coming into body will not be as distorted or inhibited by lack of available instruments of expression. Also, culture induces the individual to attain greater skillfulness, producing faculty capacities and intellectual abilities uh, better suited to express himself, better suited to interpret, and better suited to discover new and more useful means of using the energies and powers and faculties which he possesses. We may then inevitably assume that culture which produces leisure, which is the foundation of civilization, is important. True leisure, however, demands of the individual true use of leisure. And without civilization as a factor in his consciousness, leisure cannot be used. Leisure wasted in dissipation is a sin against culture as far as our great need of today is concerned. Yet it will continue unless the individual becomes aware of better usage, becomes trained in these situations. It is not inconceivable in the possibility of culture that within a very comparatively short time, perhaps a few centuries, that most of the flagrant evils of our time could be minimized to the degree that they would be comparatively negligible. There is no reason why culture cannot correct crime. Yet we have taken the attitude that crime we will have with us always, along with war. There have been many learned volumes written to the uh, point that wars are inevitable and that we will always have them. This is science moving on a level, assuming that tomorrow and forever will be like today as far as the psychic life of people is concerned. But change the people and you break all patterns of expectancy. Another kind of person will not have these wars. It is only the kind of person who has wars who will have wars. And culture will not permit this. Culture taking over will find means of arbitration 
or we'll finally dissolve the problem which even requires arbitration. If then culture can take over in a major manner, several important fields of living can be immediately assisted. Domestic relationships can be easily handled. Many things now impossible will not any longer be impossible. They may still be difficult. The impossible will become difficult. The difficult will become easy and the easy will cease to exist. These things step by step will be eliminated by the progress of things. Now culture also moving into biology points out that cultural sympathy will probably ultimately solve racial problems. Both your philosophical and your anthropological school see no reason to question that ultimately your racial problem will end and that we will have a race which has absorbed all races. And just as all races came from one, primarily, so all races trend inevitably toward one. The forcing of such union is non-cultural, but the gradual permitting of that which becomes obviously necessary, good, proper, and acceptable to occur is cultural. Therefore, the cultured human being, over a period of ages, will probably find his own proper and reasonable solutions to religious problems, racial problems, national problems, and personal problems. There is no problem that will withstand a kindly understanding. And that is where culture must come. Anthropology is therefore dedicated on a field of utility to a battle for a cultured way of life for the whole world. On the grounds that by attaining this, mankind will overcome the great adversaries which have prevented peace and a prevented fraternity among men. That having overcome these adversaries, energy will then be released from wrong use. And the individual who has been fighting for his errors down through the ages will now have energy for progress. And more energy has been used to block progress by sincere people than has ever been endeavored into that progress itself. If we could take all the obstacles put together, we would find that they overwhelmingly have exhausted the energy resources of man for ages. Anthropology says this is not necessary. That what we must have is all energy conserved for progress. True progress being man's ethical victory, his cultural victory over necessity. Man, a million years ago probably, conquered his primary necessities. He is now conquering his secondary necessities which arise from his appetites. They are not necessities at all. They are luxuries which he has found or accepted to be necessary. Culture will assist him to achieve a victory over his luxuries. And by so doing, rededicate him to the essential progress of his race or his creation or his time or whatever may be the unit with which he is immediately concerned. It will, however, give him a growing uh, non-immediate concern 
for the common good of all things and thus bring about a change and the uh, optimistic anthropologist believes that we can live to see important development in these directions and that within the next few centuries we may actually find the solution not by the expected roots but by the fact that the solution has always been in man if man would have the courage and the vision to let it express itself through his life well our time is up so I guess